Hey, hello again, everybody, and welcome into Matt and Cheryl's Gen Excellent Playlist. I'm Matt. I'm Cheryl. And we continue building the Generation X soundtrack. Our new year, 1981, starts today. We're going to take a look at the Beatles in 1981. The Beatles, you say, 1981? Yeah, they were big in 1981. If you weren't there, we were. And no, this is not an excuse. So uh, Beatle freak Cheryl can sneak some Beatles music onto this Generation X playlist. (laughs) (laughs) I think it's a pretty good excuse for that. It's a great excuse for that. But of course, you know, uh, uh, the year begins with a dark cloud with the murder of John Lennon, December, uh, was it 8th, 9th? December 8th. Uh, December 8th, 1980, just a few weeks after he had released his comeback album, Double Fantasy, after uh, five years away. So that's how the year starts. The album would have legs, three big hit singles. We're going to talk about one of them here. We've already put the first single release from that album on our playlist, which came out in 1980, just like starting over. But there would be all kinds of other Beatle-related activity in this year as well. And we're going to focus on that here today. One of the global hits of the year, in fact, was uh, a song that featured several Beatles songs in one track. That's the Stars on 45 medley. But uh, the other Beatles, uh, George Harrison, Ringo Starr, Paul McCartney, all uh, active in this year. McCartney wouldn't release a record until 1982. Of course, uh, 1980 had his McCartney 2 album from Whence Coming Up came on our playlist, but he would help the other two Beatles with their solo albums and then uh, pay his tribute to John Lennon once his uh, next record came out, Tug of War in 1982. But uh, Ringo Starr and George Harrison each had solo albums come out in 1981. I kind of was thinking that the Beatles' popularity had started to wane at that point because just from my own experience, because that was about the time that I started really getting into the Beatles was 1981. And I remember people making fun of me for liking them <laughs> because it was like old people's just, music. You know? I, can't, I just can't <laughs> comprehend that. I just well, can't. Well, I think at that time they had broken up about 10 years before. So it it was too soon before they broke up and not long enough since they broke up for them to become like nostalgic. So they were kind of in that in-between place where they hadn't obviously released any new music and other things were happening that were changing this, the the climate of music. Just the sound was changing and becoming more modern and synth driven. And so I think a lot of these bands from the 70s, if they didn't continue releasing new music that was of the time, they, you know, were kind of falling away in popularity. But when John Lennon was shot, now all of a sudden the whole world is focused and the nation, particularly the UK and the US, focused on John Lennon, the Beatles. And in fact, I think Imagine even went back up in the charts at that point too. So, you know, I mean, there was obviously a, a big focus on all the individual Beatles. So, At that time, you know, like you said, John had just released Double Fantasy. And, you know, before John was shot, there were critics that had actually written bad reviews about the album. And I think it mostly was because if people aren't familiar with the album, every other song is John. It goes John's song, then a Yoko song. And so half of the songs are John's and half of the songs are Yoko's. So he only has seven songs on this album. And they alternate. It's not like one side is his and one side is hers. So in the pre-CD era, uh, if you only wanted to listen to John's songs, which I'm sure certainly many people who purchased this record had zero interest 
yeah. in Yoko's songs. They don't want to hear John's songs. So to do that, you would have to constantly be going back and forth to the turntable, lifting the needle up, putting it down on the next track. Of course, when CDs came around later, you could program it, so it would only play his. And also, the first John Lennon music that I purchased on CD for myself was the John Lennon Collection, which came out, uh, I don't know, end of the 80s Mm -hmm. sometime. And that had almost every Lennon track from the album on it. So that was like another way you could get Double Fantasy and excise the Yoko track. Yeah. I've only listened to this album a little bit. You know, I'm not super anti-Yoko Ono. I can certainly understand why a lot of people don't like her music. I mean, it's certainly not for everybody. Yeah. And it, you know, it is kind of jarring to go back and forth with her, you know, unusual style. One thing I did notice when people think of Yoko Ono, it's this challenging avant-garde artist. He's and screaming the, the, and wailing. And- yeah. It is <laughs> yeah. Screech, you know, screaming, wailing vocals. She actually, if she had chosen to sing in a traditional way, she had the ability. I mean, there is evidence of that on this record. She could sing. Yeah. 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 I mean, this is definitely the most like pop oriented music that she had made up to that point. Although she had some albums in the 70s that were rock pop sounding and she was singing more in that vein. But there was also a lot of the kind of vocal wailing and things <laughs> happening around this, you know, uh, with that too. These songs are more or less just pop songs. You know, her vocals are still unusual, yeah. but they're not off-putting. And there's other examples of artists that are doing what she was doing, like the B-52s are a great example. Yeah. You know, the vocals. Lean Levitch was one that John had cited that he thought was right. know, kind of yeah. comparable to what Yoko was doing at the time. So at, at that time, You know, I mean, what she was doing, if she was keeping in the more pop rock vein like she was here, that was like completely acceptable music that was popular even. I I don't know if I'd say popular, but like in more independent art circles. I guess the main point I'm making here is she's not this entirely talentless modern avant-garde artist. She had vocal talent. She had classical musical training in her background. Yes. Well, you got to think about what's happening in solo Beatle world prior to John's assassination. I mean, he hasn't recorded for five years. Right. Wings had pretty much petered out. Back to the Egg was not Didn't do a anything. particularly popular album. Yeah. No big hits on it. George Harrison, pretty much a non-entity on the pop chart. You know, Blow, Blow Away, Away was, was a, a really good song. Yeah, and that, really that good was song. in the top yeah. 40 at least. Was that 79? Yeah, that came out in yeah. 79. And actually, that's a decent album. Yeah, it that, is. That the George Harrison album, yeah. And then Ringo is Ringo. Yeah. You know, so yes. <laughs> Ringo, Ringo had his one huge album, which was that peak of Beatles solo success, 73, 74 around there with the Ringo LP yep. that had two huge hits on it, Photograph and Discover of Your 16. But uh, not a whole lot that followed that. And he got dropped by his, dropped by a couple of record he labels. He did. Right? And actually, yeah. he kind of starts the story here in 1980. He just got off doing the movie Caveman with Barbara Bach, who then became his wife. So he's actually goes to all three ex-Beatles asking for songs, which they did for, well, the Ringo album has songs from all three of the Beatles that they contributed to the album. So they've all worked with Ringo. In fact, Ringo was the only one that all three members had worked with. That's easy to understand. He's not a threat to the others. He's not. Um, 
you know, George, having constantly lived in the shadow of John and Paul, wanted to push himself away from that. And then you've got John and Paul and their competitive relationship as songwriters. Yeah. And very much like brotherly type relationship where, you right. know, it's, yeah. there's ups and downs. And, and they really just, once they stopped writing together, when the Beatles dissolved, you know, that was the core of their relationship. So... So they just drifted apart. And then George actually went into the studio with John for Imagine, and he contributed to the song, How Do You Sleep?, which was a pointed attack on Paul. So they did work on others' albums, and everybody worked with Ringo because everyone loves Ringo. You got the sense in the Get Back movie. So George is stockpiling all these songs. He can only get one or two on a Beatles album because of John and Paul and, you know. Understandably, yeah. Yeah, but you got the sense that his resentment was more in Paul's direction than John's. I think John yeah. is, John's getting a little spaced out by this point. He's, he's dealt with, with heroin issues. He's married to Yoko and his focus is completely on her. Mm-hmm. So Paul is kind of, you know, where the band in the early days was, John was really considered the leader in the early days of the Beatles. Now in the late stages, he's kind of mentally checking out already. Yeah. And it's more up to Paul to kind of grab the reins and steer the ship. And I think George really started to resent. I mean, you could sense that in the movie. It was pretty obvious. What's the famous line? You know, I'll do whatever you want. Yeah. You know, I, I won't mean, even just... play at all if you don't want me to. Yeah. Right. Right. <laughs> so I think he's kind of more siding with Lennon after the split. Yeah. And, you know, he definitely made that clear by working with John on that song. So now we're in 1980 and Ringo's shopping around for songs and they all do contribute songs for his upcoming album, which would eventually be released in 1981 called Stop and Smell the Roses. Paul gives him two songs. One of them was released as a single. They're not good songs. And at this time, Paul's not really, you know, he just like you said, he just come off McCartney too, which is him by himself just noodling around in the studio with synthesizers and it's not a pop album it doesn't have it has only a few songs yeah so you know he was just kind of starting to get back into writing for a band so anyway his songs are yeah whatever and then george actually gives him one song rack my brain which did end up becoming a top 40 hit and ringo's last charting hit and he had another song too that they recorded and Ringo sang, but it was too high of a key for him to sing in. And George didn't like the lyrics that he had written for that song at that time too. So he kept that song. John gave him two songs. One was called Life Begins at 40, which is really sad because that's how old he was when he was killed. And then the other one was Nobody Told Me, which he wrote for Ringo and would eventually end up becoming a hit for John. I wouldn't count that out popping up on our playlist here in a couple. In of years. 1984, so that came out yeah. in Milk and Honey, which when right. they rec- when John and Yoko recorded um, Double Fantasy, they had enough songs in the can or partially finished that Yoko went back with Jack Douglas and they finished those songs and released them as an album called Milk and Honey. They came out in 1984, and that's what Nobody Told Me came out on that. Well, Ringo actually decided not to record Nobody Told Me after John's death, so now. We're into 1981. Two songs already have been released from Double Fantasy. Just Like Starting Over and Woman. Just Like Starting Over was number one hit. Woman, number one in the UK, made it to number two in the US. Big global hit that year. Yeah. Big global hit. Yeah. Just Like Starting Over as well. And then the third single from that album was Watching the Wheels, 
which is the song that I'm actually choosing for the playlist. Always been one of my favorite John songs. This song, like a lot of Double Fantasy, is autobiographical. It's basically chronicling the last five years that he spent with his son, with he and Yoko's son, Sean, raising Sean. His last studio album had come out, uh, Walls and Bridges, in the middle of the 70s. It's a good album. Yeah, yeah, it's a good album. And yeah, so then in 1975, Sean was born on John's birthday, October 9th. And he and Yoko had tried to have children several times previously with no success. Mm -hmm. So John decided that he was going to focus all of his attention on raising this child. There's actually a lot of video clip from this time because Yoko was like constantly filming them. And the videos actually for all three songs are just clips of them, of Sean and John. Home movies. Home movies, exactly. We used to call them. Yes, yep, (laughs) that's what it is. And actually, it's really sweet. He was so engaged as a dad. And, you know, you'd hear that he was like saying that all he was doing was spending his time was like baking bread. (laughs) And he was, and he was like really completely focused on creating this idyllic setting and being there for him 100%. And it's really nice to see that side of John. You know, this is a side of John that a lot of people really hadn't seen. They still weren't seeing because he was completely out of the spotlight. People didn't know what he was doing during these five years until we saw the home movies. And that was after his death. And it's important to note prior to his withdrawal from public life, not only as a famous ex-Beatle and as a you know, successful recording artist in his own right in the first half of the 70s. He was very visible in a number of arenas. A lot of the liberal protest movement, he was constantly showing up on television talk shows. Yes. Espousing various causes, both he and Yoko. So he was often in the spotlight. He was. And then in 1973, he had his Lost Weekend, which actually lasted 18 months. And once again, he was in the spotlight in a negative sense, really. But he was out all the time partying with Harry Nielsen, Ringo Starr, Alice Cooper. You know, like he wasn't recording at that time, but he had the number one hit with Elton John, Whatever Gets You Through the Night. He, well, he's collaborating, he was collaborating with Harry with Nielsen. Harry Nielsen. Uh, yeah, he, he did the rock and roll recordings with Phil Spector. So and then all of a sudden, nothing. You know, he was just completely out of the public eye out of the game exactly which is what this song is about it's basically addressing the people that are people say i'm crazy doing what i'm doing he's just telling them that i'm okay even though they look at me kind of strange surely you're not happy now you're no longer in the game but he's just sitting there watching the wheels go round and round and i just had to let it go in the demo version initially he was calling it emotional wreck. And then he changed it to I'm crazy. And, you know, that is in the, in the lyrics, but yeah. it's interesting because people say I'm crazy people doing I'm what crazy. I'm doing. Yeah. yeah. But I'm really glad that he changed the title because now it's coming from John's perspective. I'm watching the wheels. And what it initially started out, the title was from everyone else's perspective that you know, I'm an emotional wreck and I'm crazy. And that's what people maybe were just assuming was happening because they really didn't know. That's one of the things that I love so much about this song is that he is coming across like he's having to sort of defend himself. But 
there's really nothing to defend because what he's doing is actually just so pure. And that's interesting. So the song initially is the outside perspective on a guy who many probably believe at this point, maybe he is having some mental problems. He's kind of a hermit. He doesn't leave the house. Well, yeah, he's leaving the house, but he's going to the grocery store. Yeah. He's going to the bakery down the block. He's taking his son to the park. He's doing those things. He's trying to lead a normal life yeah, and not the life of a celebrity. Well, as normal as a life can be for somebody super rich who doesn't have to work and has his every need catered to, well, and they, I guess. They spent a lot take of the time, cynical view. Yeah. But yeah. They spent a lot of time in the Bahamas <laughs> and they were out, you know, like, so they had other places to be, They but they still were living in New York City in the Dakota and he was yeah. out and about. And this is why he was so accessible to Mark David Chapman, his killer, because, you know, he'd go out to the just be walking around in town, go off to the store. He was very much of the people in New York City. And and yeah, I mean, especially because what he was coming off of between 73 to like 74, 75, I could see people being concerned and thinking that maybe he's not okay because he yeah. wasn't okay in those years. <laughs> <laughs> he was having a lot of public moments. Most of them were in a drunken state, you know, but this is not a person who's doing well. It's funny, too. He's having his last weekend. He is having an affair with a personal assistant, Nay Pang, under the under the it, it's like Yoko's blessing. Yeah. So yeah. <laughs> she sent May Pang with John it, to go off on their last weekend. And I guess to her credit, she saw that he needed to get something out of his system. And he does this, comes back to her eventually. They do manage to have a successful pregnancy after several miscarriages and the trauma that comes with that. And so obviously Sean was just very treasured because of all the strife that preceded his birth with the, with the yeah. uh, attempts to have children. And then that becomes his complete focus over these five. So he's just basically the song is just telling people, I'm fine. Yeah. I'm doing exactly what I want to do. Yep. I can do that. I've had success in my life. It allows me to do what I want to do. And what I don't want to do right now is chase this fame game, mm -hmm. this celebrity. You know, I just want to be normal. And right around, I mean, you go back to the breakup of the Beatles. He's going to great pains to say, Bob Dylan, same way. I'm not some god. You know, I'm yeah. not some prophet. I'm just a guy who writes songs. I'm just, I'm just like you. This is just something that I, I happen to be good at and enjoy doing, and I've had success doing it. Mm -hmm. Don't make me into something that I'm not. I'm just a human being. Well, and that's what you know? I kind of see this song as like on his first solo album, he has a song called God and it lists all these things going down that he doesn't believe in. And at the end he says, I don't believe in Beatles. I just believe in me, Yoko and me. And now basically what he's saying is I just believe in Sean, Yoko and me. And that's his reality. And there's another song on double fantasy, beautiful boy which is about Sean. It's a lovely song. McCartney-esque. It really is. Yeah. In fact, that was the song that Paul said he liked the most. He loved that song. And actually, this song, too, it is just, it's a gorgeous song. It's really yeah. pretty. John wrote this song on the piano. Uh, it doesn't have any guitar in it. It's just piano bass. But when they were recording it, he wanted there to be sort of like this round sound to it, like wheels, so there was a, a busker in New York around where he lived that played hammered street musician, street yeah. musician playing hammered dulcimer. And they brought him in into the studio to record the, the hammered dulcimer on this song. And actually, he didn't know who John Lennon was. 
And he was like, what's your name again? I'm sure Lennon loved that. Yeah, I think John loved the fact that he didn't know who he was. They just pulled this guy off the street. And it really does add to the song. It's in that part that goes, no longer riding on the merry-go-round. It goes... Da, 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 da. Love that key yeah. change there. Yep. That's where you hear the dulcimer in there. So anyway, this song does well in the charts. And then, you know, like I said, Ringo's album comes out. He's got a top 40 hit from that album. And then George takes the song that he had given to Ringo, rewrites the lyrics, and makes it a tribute to John. And it became the song All Those Years Ago, which was released in 1981, and it made it to number two in the U.S. charts. Yep. Came out mid-year. I think it was released in June. Mm -hmm. Reached number two on the charts. Never got to number one because... (laughs) Betty Betty Davis Davis kept it from number one. (laughs) Had a lock on the number one position for more than two months. Yeah. And only relented for a single week. We'll talk about that week in a minute. George had recorded all those years ago with Ringo when they were initially thinking of putting it on his albums. He took those tracks that Ringo had played drums on and he asked Paul, actually Paul, Linda and Danny Lane to come do backup vocals. And so they recorded backup vocals and he put those on the track. So this does include all three surviving Beatles. This is the only time the three of them, this combination with Paul, George and Ringo had ever been on a song together. Ringo's drumming on it. Paul sings backing vocals. Yep, and George plays guitar. It's a good song. It's a good song. It's a good song. It's full of hooks. Yeah. And you know, it's touching. They used to play this video all the time on MTV, and I loved it because it was basically a montage of Beatle clips from Hardy's Night Help and Magical Mystery Tour, and then just lots of clips of John. So at the same time, Paul is recording his Tug of War album, and he has a song that came out on that album called Here Today. That is a tribute to John. Also very touching. It's actually, it's a really good song. Great album too. Short, beautiful song. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you know, when something shocking like that happens, it takes some time for it to sink in and kind of be able to have some way to express those emotions. And actually, Paul was in the studio recording the following day. And when he was leaving the studio, the reporters were out there waiting for him. And of course, the question they ask is, and he, this is in George Martin's Air Studios because George Martin produced Tug of War. Um, asked about Lennon's death, and his response was, "It's a drag, isn't it?" And I remember seeing this on TV. I mean, Paul's in shock at this point. And right, if you see the video clip, you got to see the video clip. Clearly, he's got somebody shoving a mic in his face. He doesn't want to be doing this right now. Yeah, doesn't want to deal with this person, and he's just trying to end it. Yeah, and. So, I mean, he just kind of off the cuff says, well, it's a dragon. I mean, it, the isn't it part almost makes it twice as bad. I know. <laughs> it's like, what, you don't know? Is it not? A, is it yeah. or is it not a drag, isn't Paul? It? Like, it, it's a drag, isn't it? And then it's like, can we go now? You know, he's just trying to get out of there, yeah. basically. Yeah. Um, but yeah, he had trouble living that down. Yeah, he did. So then about, well, maybe like three months after John's death, Yoko recorded and released Season of Glass. And it actually became the biggest selling album of her career. It charted at number 49. She went back into the studio with all the same musicians that are on Double Fantasy, Tony Levin on bass, Andy Newmark on drums, you know, big time session musicians playing on this album. 
And this is the album that has the cover with John's glasses. Yes. His broken glasses broken with the blood on Broken bloody glasses. It. Yeah. Very bold artistic move there. And again, brought her under fire. Yeah. But actually totally makes sense that Yoko would do yes. something like this. Oh, it's and, incredible. And that's what she's like. This is John. This is what's left of John. And it also is in the background of the view out of their apartment building out of the Dakota the record label did not want her to release it. And she was adamant and said, no, this is what I'm doing and is not going to waver. Most of these songs actually were written in the mid 70s. They weren't necessarily new songs, even though they were very poignant and relevant to her life at that time. There's a song called Goodbye Sadness that is just heartbreaking to listen to. And once again, on this album, she's singing. It's very similar to the sound she had on Double Fantasy. So. Basically, the major players in John Lennon's life and in the Beatle camp all had releases in 1981 relevant to John, you know, that were tributes or showing what they were doing to grieve John's death. Paul's statement, we have to wait until 82, which, again, didn't play in his favor after his initial reaction, uh, in quote. Yes, because then you didn't hear... yeah. anything from him but that's that's not his fault it's just the timing of it was such that he didn't have any new product ready to come out in 81 he didn't rush release anything which would have been a cynical move anyhow to capitalize on unnecessary his friend's death it wouldn't that would not have gone and here today wasn't like he released it as a single it wasn't it was just an it was kind of it was an album track just deep in the album and it was just something that i think he really was just doing for himself. And it wasn't like he was trying to make a big deal about it. It was just like a personal statement. So the other Beatles related item that comes out in 1981, again, not capitalizing on John Lennon's death. It was just a freak of timing. This project was already underway before Lennon was murdered. And this is the Stars on 45 single, which was released in Europe in January of 81, later on in the United States, more toward mid-year fascinating story behind this song. So end of the disco era, these bootleg 12 inches start showing up where people take pre-existing songs, edit them together for the dance floor. And this Dutch music mogul by the name of Jaap Egermont happens upon one of these things in a record store. They're playing it and he's fascinated by it, but he's also a bit disturbed by it because Jaap Egermont happens to own the copyright and the publishing on, uh, I guess... It would have to be the biggest pop hit to come out of the Netherlands, Venus by Shocking Blue, which mm-hmm. was a number one hit in the United States in 1969, a classic song. And he's hearing this medley of songs, and this one shows up on it. It's like, well, wait a minute. I never authorized anybody to use this song. So immediately he starts to investigate. He wants to find out who's responsible and sue to get his money. Can't really track down the source of this record. But, you know, comes to find out that this is a thing. These. DJ's putting these bootlegs 12 inches together, and he has the bright idea to do his own, except instead of taking records and splicing them together, and it's a precursor of hip-hop music, kind of in a way, he's going to re-record all of these songs and put them together in this massive 12-inch record. So he gets a bunch of studio musicians together and sets about recreating the experience of one of these bootleg dance floor 12 inches, these medleys, but they're all trying to faithfully re-record these songs with studio musicians and singers. And 
he almost copied this record that he discovered song for song. And there happened to be a lot of Beatles records on this. So initially this gets released as a 12 inch record in the Netherlands. It starts to become popular and they think, well, we couldn't really do a normal single out of this. Could you have a seven inch single? And the 12 inch one well, is really long. It's like 15 minutes long or something. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's not quite that long. It's like 11 minutes long. Yeah. It's got a bunch of Beatle records in the middle. It starts out with some other stuff and it ends with some other stuff. Yeah. But the core of it is this string of Beatles songs. So they do go about creating a a seven-inch record out, and they pretty much take the middle portion of the record. They keep the beginning part, the end part. So it's like this goofy intro, very disco poppy. Where the stars on 45, keep on burning in your mind. Like we can Um, work it out. (laughs) Remember (laughs) Twisted Shop. So that's the beginning and the end. There's this constant disco drum beat. Hand clapping, too. Right. Right. So everything is set to the same beats per minute, the same four on the floor disco beat that was the bane of so many people's existence, <laughs> the rockers in the 70s, late 70s, early 80s. Uh, so he keeps the shocking blue part in there, that, that the strumming guitar. It's classic riff. Yes. And then uh, before the Beatles songs come in, you get the Archie Sugar Sugar. That's one of the first songs on the record, too. Now, okay, so this song, this comes out, you start hearing it on the radio in 81. I'm 11 years old. Mm -hmm. So 1980-81 was my sixth grade year in school. You're fifth grade year, right? So I know the Beatles. You know, my dad's got a bunch of Beatles, right? He's got a mono Sgt. Pepper's record in his collection. He's got the the White Album. He had a, a reel to reel. A tape that he, you know, made himself of a bunch of Beatles songs. Big fan of Paul McCartney and Wings as a youngster. But I got to think that when this came out, I probably might have thought Sugar Sugar was a Beatles song. Yeah. It just sat, it it, It it fit in. in Yeah. Yeah. So I can understand. I'm sure a lot of people thought that. Yeah. I think the only reason why they kept that in there maybe is because they really wanted to keep the Venus guitar riff and that just happened to follow it. And so, right. but it is kind yeah. of funny because it's just Venus, Sugar Sugar, and then the rest are Beatles songs. And I can see why they wanted to keep the Venus riff because it's so cool. And, you know, and so the seven inch version is what most people will remember hearing because, yeah. you know, it was a radio hit. It was a number one song. In the, it was a global smash yeah. starting in Europe. So, I mean, it, it spread throughout the low countries first, you know, Belgium and the Netherlands and then into Germany. And then from there took off. And then uh, the United States was kind of the, like the last domino. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there were all of these hoops they had to get through to get this song released in the United States, clearing the publishing. And part of the deal was they had to put the name of every Beatles song every, on, the la- yeah. on the title of the, of the record. So, you know, when the DJs told you what the song was, it, it was Stars on 45 and the band was Stars on... So that was a little confusing. Yeah, the song and but the on band the record, were both Stars on 45. On the record itself, legally, the title of the song was a, a list of it's like all the Beatles words or something. Yes. <laughs> it's the longest so it set the record. One yeah, title set the record for the longest title. But on the twelve-inch version, now before you get into the Sugar Sugar and the Beatles track, there's a couple of recent songs right off the top, and it's two songs that we've got on our playlist. Yep. It's Funky Town mm-hmm. by Lip Sync. And Video Killed the Radio Star by The Buggles. Yeah. Those are like the first two sampled songs on the 12-inch record. So for that reason, if nothing else, that's the version I'm putting on the playlist okay. because I, <laughs> I just think that's really cool. Yeah. Um, 
And yeah, it does go on. It uh, it's long. It's really long. But I but it's really well done. And part of the reason it works is the vocals are very close to sounding like the especially the Lennon voice. Yes. That's a very good, very good John Lennon imitation. Mm-hmm. I think Baz Mize, B-A-S-M-U-Y-S. That's the guy who does the Lennon parts, and he's great. And I actually, the other one too is, do you want to know a secret? Which George sings lead on, but it's a, it's a very yeah. strange kind of nasally. Listen, do you want to know a secret? Know and they do secret? that, you know. They think they do. They, you promise not to tell? <laughs> they do a pretty good rendition of that. Most of the songs on the medley are John songs. The majority of them are. Well, here's the other thing that's interesting to me too. Again, as a young kid, not this knowledgeable music fan at this point. I, I just assumed that these were all like Beatles hits, song, and a lot of them were not singles. No, there's they're, some they're like interesting a, choices yeah. they made, like "No Reply" and "I'll Be Back." Those are, yeah, like album cuts. Do you want to know secret? Is I mean that's a real early 1963. Yeah. You know, basically the list is well, Venus, Sugar, Sugar, then "No Reply," "I'll Be Back," "Drive My Car." Do you want to know a secret? We can work it out. I should have known better. Nowhere, man, you're going to lose that girl, which you're going to lose that girl is from hell, but not a very that's well-known not, that's song. That's not going to be high on the list of anybody's favorite no. Beatles songs, certainly. But I think part of the reason they chose these songs was the, the, uh, the tempo. Yeah. Right. And yeah. it has to yeah, keep the all same all the way together. through. And it does work. They all fit together. So yeah, they had to find songs that actually would work with the right BPMs and that would kind of segue into each other. And this is pre-digital editing and sampling. Yeah. So they they had to sp- they had to splice all of these songs on tape and mix them manually without computer. So this was quite an undertaking. Yeah. The whole thing is kind of hilarious really because it's it's like <laughs> yeah. it's basically like an aerobic song. And this is 1981. At the beginning, right, disco is supposed to be dead. It's a disco song. Like it has a disco beat. Even at the beginning, they're like, let's do it. Got to beat the drum. And then they're like, you can boogie (laughs) like disco. Love that disco sound. And they even say the word disco in there a couple times. It's like, okay, what is the least cool thing you could do right now? Oh, I know. Have a disco beat and then actually say the word disco in a song. But, you know, I guess if you bring the Beatles into it, it doesn't matter. It's going to be a hit. So, again, I guess a fluke of timing that this song is. You kind of wonder if not for John Lennon's death, uh, what what the fate of this would have been. I I tend to think it still would have been popular. Well, I think it definitely would have been popular in Europe and in the UK because the UK... They were like cuckoo for medleys. <laughs> they couldn't get enough medleys. There were several other stars on 45 medleys that were made. There's like a Bee Gees one. There's other Beatles one. There's a Beach Boys. There's a Motown. There's one with like Frankie Valley And ABBA was ABBA, a big, big one yeah. in England. And those all number two, I think. charted in the, U- in, in the UK or in, in Europe. But actually in the Top of the Pops, which is the show kind of like American Bandstand we had in the US but in Britain they had the top of the pops where they'd have like songs from the top 40 and it was a weekly show and there was one week where they had seven medleys in the top 40 <laughs> and none of them were stars on well one of them was stars on 45 which actually in in Europe they were called Star Sound that was the name of the band but they were only one of them there were like five or six other artists <laughs> that had medleys <laughs> so it was big there 
I just vaguely seem to recall that there was another Stars on 45. I think it was another, wasn't another Beatles? Yeah, and it started out, out with later. Star Wars. Do you remember? It started out with the Star <laughs> no. Wars theme song. Yeah. There's a part two and a part three. And they do have yeah. Beatles songs on them too. But the one, the part two, I kind of vaguely remember that one. And that's the one that starts with Star Wars. And it even has the... Ba-doo, ba-doo, ba-doo. Yes. And it even has the um, Neil Morcone, the good and the bad and the ugly. That's in there too. I have a vague memory of this. And that's the second one. So I think it did chart in the lower regions in the US. And I don't recall any of these other medleys. I guess the Beach Boys one was charted fairly high in the United States. I don't recall hearing that one. I don't know um, about that if in yeah. the US. I think most of these were popular in the UK. Yeah. But yeah, I definitely think it was just the timing because everyone was so focused on the Beatles and John Lennon and that it just really struck a chord and you know it does feel good it's a feel good song puts a smile on your face smile on your face and like they say the stars on 45 keep on turning in your mind it does it is so sticky (laughs) like you cannot get the song out of your head so i think it was infectious in that way and the fact that it was the beatles and that people really needed you know there was just so much grief and sadness around john lennon's death and that and it, it was a gloomy that boost, you know, that positive. It was boost. a gloomy time aside from that. I mean, the American economy was still in bad shape. You had the hostage crisis in Iran. Three Mile Island was recent. Nuclear dread was very palpable yes. at this time. And we're starting so, the Reagan era and the Thatcher era. And right. yeah, people needed something that just felt good. Yeah. And it did. Now, again, I want to make great pains say, this is my choice for the playlist, not Cheryl's. Yes. We each pick a global smash from the year. This is my global smash pick. I want to get songs that put me back in that era. And this does. I mean, when I hear this, I picture myself hearing this on the radio at my grandparents' house. This is one of Um, those songs that when I went and listened to it now, obviously, I have not heard this song really since 1981. So it was one of those where it's just like, whoa, such a flashback. Yeah, (laughs) like you said, I was just instantly taken back to that time. And I loved this. It is a good choice for the playlist for me too, of the time, because I was definitely into this at the time. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think I quite yet had my stereo system in my room, but shortly after this, one of the first things I would do when I had that thing was gather up all the Beatles records I could find and record them all into a cassette tape. Yeah, know? I had this was right around the time for me too that my mom had a friend she worked with who had every Beatle album and she made cassettes for me of all of them and I would walk around the house. I didn't have my stereo yet either. I got it the following year. I would walk around with a little handheld cassette player up to my ear and just listen to Beatles constantly and that was where I started that love for the Beatles. And yeah, it was from having those cassette tapes. Yep. Yep. Right Up until I got time. that first sound design all in one that had the eight track slide in the turntable and the tune, you know, I, yes. I it, it would have been, it would have been my old suitcase, Magnavox record player in my room and my clock radio. That's how I yeah. did my music. I had clock that. radio yeah. and we had the family stereo that was upstairs that, it, you know, that was like a piece of furniture And then I had a handheld cassette player, the kind that you would just, you know, record yourself talking on. And I hold that to my ear because it was (laughs) pre-Walkman and it was pre-stereo in my room. 
Now, 1982 is when everything would change because I got my first stereo that was in my bedroom. I'm having a hard time remembering when the timeline was for me because we were talking about albums from 1981. I was trying to think, okay, when did I get that album? The way I could differentiate my mind is, was I listening to it upstairs on the family stereo or was I listening to it in my bedroom? And like Rick Springfield, Working Class Dog, I definitely was listening to upstairs. So I know I got that in 1981. But Albums like Foreigner 4. Playlist foreshadowing. Yes. Albums like Foreigner 4 and Journey, Escape. Those I was listening to in my room. So I think I got them in 1982, the the following year. So you've already foreshadowed one there. We're going to be picking uh, nine songs each. So 18 total songs for the playlist from 1981. Again, our ground rules. Each of us pick a global smash from the year. Stars and 45 is mine. And then we'll each pick an additional number one hit from the United States or one of the biggest hits of that year. And then uh, flesh it out with our own personal choices. So that will round out our 18 selections for the playlist. We've got some fun special episodes coming, including our next get together. I've been excited about this one for a while. We're going to look at hip hop music for the first time because 1981 is the year when Blondie releases Rapture. That comes out early in the year. And that was the introduction to rap for a lot of us young white folks from the West who weren't really part of the uh, the New York scene, the downtown art scene, or didn't live in the South Bronx, which is hip hop is still pretty focused in that area at the time. But this is where hip hop starts to become a mainstream phenomenon in 1981. Mm-hmm. So we're going to get a couple of special guests in to join us for that. You mentioned Foreigner 4 and Journey Escape. I think we're going to do a special episode just focusing on those two records. Oh, um, Good. down the line, because those were two very impactful albums from the year. And we're also doing something a little different in how we prepare and select our songs for the show. Now, I thought this was going to make life easier for us, and it may have the opposite effect. And maybe it's just because of this year. I've already mentioned 1981 being a bit of a mystery for me as far as greatest album. Mm-hmm. But there are so many singles Oh my god! From this year, I have a worthy list of, of the like playlist. Fifty songs right now. It's paining me to realize some of the stuff we're going to have to leave behind mm-hmm. and not put on the playlist after we did all this front end work to produce our list. So instead of picking songs kind of as we go along, we're going to do it up front and then see what matches on our list and select that way. But we're going to have to leave a lot of great music behind. Sadly, we're going to. I think our end of the year episode, we're going to have a lot to say about the near misses. <laughs> right, right. right. <laughs> yeah. I didn't think I had a ton of albums either, but now I'm going through and finding all these albums. I'm like, oh yeah, that one came out in 1981 too. Like there's a bunch of them that initially really weren't on my radar. And as I go back and look, I'm like, oh my gosh, that was such a huge album for me either at the time, <laughs> you know, or now. And Yeah. So I'm glad to hear that we're going to talk about Foreigner 4 and Journey Escape because those were so big for me in the time. But there's other albums that I like better that I want to choose now. Well, I want to make sure we do a special show on those because right now, as it stands, we don't have a song from either of those albums making the playlist, which would be a crime. So they're going to be on the alternate. Yeah, they will show up on the alternate playlist that I'm curating as well. Also going on our alternate playlist from this week's episode is uh, the tributes to John Lennon all those years ago from George Harrison and Paul McCartney's here today, which is actually a 1982 release. Uh, And the songs that make our playlist, Stars on 45 and Watching the Wheels. So we hope you will join us for our next episode when we tackle 
hip-hop music in 1981. Until then, I'm Matt. I'm Cheryl. And this is Matt and Cheryl's Gen Excellent Playlist. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. Take care.